0: Let me start off with a question. What's been your worst journey ever? What's been the worst journey you've ever done? Why don't you chat to the person next to you and let's see who can top the worst journey competition that we'll uh, launch into. Your worst journey ever. Right, who, who who just felt that they won that competition between the two of you as you were sharing stories? Just raise your hand. Who just feels convicted they need to get out more? <laughs> right, well, I'll tell you my worst story ever, um, uh, my worst journey. And uh, uh, it was when we, when we were just given our first car. It was a Toyota Starlet, lovely red, very small. And uh, uh, it was um, uh, just uh, me and Simona and uh, Micah. And uh, we were on our journey to Holland and it was Christmas time and it was snowing, the weather was bad, it was freezing, the roads weren't particularly great. And as we got going, we realised that there were a few lessons that we had to learn the hard way of owning your first car, of which the first one was antifreeze. We'd forgotten to put antifreeze in the screen wiper. compartment, uh, which meant that we were driving along the road, and uh, all the grit started to splat up, and it was freezing, so it started to freeze up straight away on the window as well, and uh, I thought, I'll just kind of pull the little lever, nothing happening, nothing happening, and then I suddenly remember my dad once uh, speaking about antifreeze, the importance of antifreeze, something you would totally underestimate until you own a car. So here we were, and obviously by the time you discover that you need antifreeze, it's too late, isn't it? because all the pipes are frozen up, you can't unfreeze them. And here we are, driving on this road to Holland. And uh, what we had to do is kind of stop the car every 20 miles to kind of like clean the front window Uh, and then start driving again. It kind of starts splatting up straight away. And then you kind of ended up with this like tiny little patch, like halfway through the mid-top that you could kind of peer through as you were driving. (laughs) Highly dangerous, I can uh, tell you. So we were just trying to kind of tail uh, a few uh, big lorries that had a lot of water coming off them just to kind of try and wipe the screen. Uh, And uh, we've even tried, uh, we bought some antifreeze at the next kind of petrol station, which obviously was too late. Uh, We even tried to kind of get a little cup and throw it out the window at the front, uh, which just uh, ended up, Simona, with a blue Christmas jumper uh, sleeve uh, and uh, uh, not very effective. And, And we just looked at each other and thought, gosh, this is hard work, isn't it? So we're driving forward. The back screen is totally clear because you're you're getting all this dirt from the front. You're peering through this little tiny patch. And in the back, you you can see, like, it's clear. You can look straight through the window, no problem whatsoever. Now, don't you think that life sometimes is a little bit like that? You look backwards and you think, yeah, that just makes total sense. But whilst you're in the midst of it, it's really hard to make sense of life, isn't it? Um, We often do this, don't we, like with uh, with some of our uh, conversations, like, oh, yeah, I could really see how God was at work in this situation now. But whilst you're in the midst of it, you go, what on earth is God doing? I can't work it out. Now, the same is true for the Bible. The way that we read the Bible is very different from the people who actually lived in the time the Bible was written. Because we look back and we look at the whole story and we go, yeah, that makes sense. But when you look forward and you're right in the midst of it, it's like you're peering through that little patch and you're trying to make sense of where you're going and what direction you're going. And that's exactly what we're going to do in the lead up to Christmas over the next few weeks. You see, when we celebrate Christmas, we know how the story ends. We've heard about Jesus being born as a baby, how he grew up to be a man, how he died and how the church started. We know all of that. So when we look through the Christmas story, we go, oh, isn't that lovely? Jesus being born in a manger, um, uh, uh, all those promises, the things that are happening, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, we, we understand it all. But the truth is, when you lived in Jesus' time, you would have no clue. It, it made no sense. So what we're going to do over these next few weeks is we're going to look uh, uh, towards the coming of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament, We're just going to assume that you don't know the New Testament. All you have is the Old Testament. And trying to understand what the promises meant to the people in that time. We're going to look through the little patches in the Old Testament where you can have a peek through about what's promised and what's ahead without understanding the total picture yet. And then being freshly amazed by the amazing truth of the gospel. Are you up for that? Why don't you find your Bibles or digital devices and we're going to look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. So you can find uh, Isaiah just over halfway through in your Bible after Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations, Song of Songs, and then you'll get to... Isaiah, whilst you're flicking through there, let me just quickly explain a little bit of the background. So, Moses led the Israelites into the promised land, uh, 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 well, to the border, and then Joshua led them into the promised land, and uh, he helped the people to conquer the promised land. And uh, once they were there, um, we can see that things are starting to spiral out of control a little bit. They thought we've arrived, but really, um, what they did, um, uh, did do was kind of fail straight from the start. They didn't completely clear the land. Uh, and um, what happened was that some of their enemies uh, remained in the land and uh, started to lead them astray. And every time when they were led astray, things started to go wrong. And then God would send a helper, a saviour. A judge, And we can see several judges coming. Then we, after that, see that they wanted a king and God used kings to help and protect them. Uh, and, but we can see this constant cycle. People moving away from God and then God sending a rescuer. People moving away from God and then God sending a rescuer. Now, we can see that after uh, King Saul, King David, uh, King Solomon, uh, the kingdom splits in two. We've got 10 tribes in the north called Israel with capital Samaria. And we've got two tribes in the south called Judah with the capital Jerusalem. And what we can see is in the north, there's mainly bad kings. uh, And in the south, there is a lot of bad kings, but also a few good ones that continue to lead God's people back. Now, what we can see when we pick up the story from Isaiah is that we're into 200 years of national disaster uh, and royal dysfunction. Uh, And uh, uh, Isaiah is the prophet that speaks to the king in this time. And uh, it's particularly the king of Judah as we're picking up the story. So Isaiah 7 Verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind." Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sher-Jeshub, to meet Ahas uh, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Romaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Romalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will to be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Then again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it is in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Whew, <sighs> bit of a heavy passage this morning, isn't it? Loads of names in there and loads of things in there that when you read it at first, you go, what on earth is going on? This is uh, This is going to require you to latch on for the journey of your lifetime with me. And I'm going to try to coach you through a bit of history and a bit of understanding what this text really means. Now, we know the last bit, don't we, about Emmanuel, the virgin shall give birth. We've been singing that in carol services. And when we sing it, we kind of all get a bit Christmassy, don't we? It's Christmas. Yay! But when you read it through the Old Testament, the original promise landed at a very, very different time. And I can tell you that the people who heard this promise at first did not feel all Christmassy and all tingly. They were filled with dread because it was a warning about what was to come. So let me catch you up on the story a little bit. At the time of the story, Ahaz is king of Judah and Pekah uh, is king of Israel. Now the Assyrian Empire is on the rise at that moment and everyone's afraid. So all these countries around are afraid of the Assyrian Empire. So what happens is that Pekah, king of Israel, is trying to set up a pact with um, Rezin, king of Syria. And he wants Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them uh, so three nations could stand uh, together against the Assyrian Empire. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're a smaller nation, you're going to have to find some friends to stand up to the big bully. Um, but Ahaz doesn't want to do that. He is more inclined to make a pact with the king of Assyria, with the big guy, um, because he thinks if I just side with the right person, then I'm going to be more safe. Now, basically what happens is Pekah doesn't like that, uh, and uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, doesn't like it. So they pair up together, and they go and attack Judah to make them join them. So, I mean, you can see this is a wonderful alliance, isn't it? If you're not going to go in this freeway, then I'm going to force you my way. So what happens is they go over it, and their idea is to put a puppet king on the throne in Judah called Tabiel, um, and uh, who basically will nod yes to everything uh, that Israel and Syria will be saying. So what you can see is at that moment in time, uh, the Ahaz king of Judah is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. There's the Assyrian Empire on the rise, which is a thread. And now there's an immediate threat of the king of Israel and Syria coming up against him, knocking at his door saying, we're going to force you to join alliances with us. So he's kind of got no place to go. Have you ever felt like that before? Caught between a rock and a hard place? Yeah? Yeah? Right. Well, I see that I need to spark your imagination a little bit. So let me try and help you understand being, being caught between a rock and a hard place basically means you've got nowhere to go. Your options are bad. It's either being overtaken by the Assyrians or it's being overrun by the Syrians and uh, the, the Israelites. that are immediately knocking at your door. You don't, there's no good options. Sometimes you arrive at a season in life and there's just no good options. Whatever you look at, it's just all wrong. You've, you might have lost your job and you're, you're well advanced in your career you'll think, how on earth am I going to find another job at my age? It's almost like there's no good options left. It might be that you've, you've been to the doctor and you've just received bad news. Really, really bad news. And there wasn't even a spark of hope at the end of the conversation. There's just bad news. It might be that you've come to the end in a relationship that's just been dysfunctional and not working. And there's just no hope. It might be that you've lost contact with your kids or with your friends and, and, and there's just no easy way through. I'm just throwing out a few things here and I know that some of these things will, will resonate with some of you but there will be other things. But as, as I start speaking about this, you'll start to understand that there will. it's just a matter of time for us to hit moments in life where we're just caught between <coughs> a rock and a hard place. Now what will we do at that moment in time? All you have is a tiny little patch that you're trying to look through at the front screen, uh, and you're just waiting to get past it so you can look in the back screen and say, oh, yeah, that all made sense. But in that moment, what, how are you to respond to that situation when all you can see is just a tiny little patch through the front shield? Well, this story teaches us what things we need to keep in mind when we're in those situations and we've started to lose perspective. So at that moment in time... Um, Isaiah is sent to the king. God's not forgotten about the king. He sends Isaiah, a messenger, and he sends him with news. And the first thing that he does is he reminds the king that uh, although this looks pretty bad on paper and in real life, he needs to see things in perspective. Uh, What he says is um, that uh, uh, the the armies that have come against him uh, really could be reduced down to two nations who could be reduced down to two capitals, Damascus of Syria and Samaria of Israel, who could be reduced down to two kings, Pekah and Rezin. And what he's saying is, um, do not fear man. He says all these armies and all these problems can be reduced to two nations, can be reduced to two capitals, can be reduced to two kings. And these two kings have come against you. And what you must remember is that these people are people. He's trying to put it in perspective. Do not fear man. Do not fear man. Ultimately, when we go wrong at the moments where we can't see things, what we do is we look through the little patch and all we can see is what we can see with our natural eye. And what we forget is that there's a supernatural world happening at the same time. When you look at your circumstances, there is more going on than just your job. There's more going on than just your family. There's more going on than just your relationship. There's more going on than just you. It's not just about people. There is a wider screen that you can't see, but that God is able to see, in which God sees the whole thing from a supernatural perspective. So the first thing that we need to understand is that we need an a adjustment of, of our vision, of our perspective, and understand that our fear should not be rooted for the fear of circumstances or the fear of people, but that our fear needs to lead us to the fear of God. The God who is in heaven, who can see all things. His problem is human. And yet we serve a God who is not just in the natural, but also in the supernatural. Now, um, Isaiah uh, encourages Ahaz to ask him for a sign. He says, why don't you ask God for a sign to confirm that you don't serve a God who's just natural, but a God who's supernatural. A sign in the deepest depths or a sign in the, in the highest heavens. Now what Ahaz says, it sounds like a very pious answer, doesn't it? He says, oh no, I won't. I won't put the Lord God to the test. It it almost seems like, who am I to question God? That's what it reads like, isn't it? Well, it's a bunch of crap. Really what happens is Ahaz has already decided in his heart that he's going to side with the king of Assyria. He's not a pious man who doesn't want to put the law to the test. He's a man who's already made up his plan and says, I don't really need a sign from God. I've got my own solution here. Thank you. So he's like appearing pious, but really filled with unbelief. I don't need a sign. I don't even trust God to save me. I've made my own backup plan. I've made an ally. Now, what King Ahas has come up with because he's seeing things from natural perspective, is he's making a natural alliance, a human alliance. He's trusting that his alliance is going to save him. And here's Isaiah saying, ask your divine alliance for a sign. And what he says, no, thank you, he'll just come up with his own plan. Now, isn't that a bit like us most of life? We go through troubles we can only see the small patch from a natural perspective. And what we immediately do is we start to make alliances. We we'll start to find somebody who can rescue us. We start to find something in which we can put our hope. Um, you lose your job. What's the first thing you do? Get out the paper. Try and find jobs. Spend hours on the internet trying to find something. Even if it's, I don't know, whatever job. As long as you can find something. That's what your all your hope becomes about, isn't it? Um, uh, if, if, if you're in a situation where um, you've got some financial issues, where would you go to? <gasps> the wonderful alliance of a MasterCard. That'll just solve all my problems, right? Um, where do we go to when life just gets a bit too much? When our relationships are breaking down, we're under pressure, we just need a bit of escape. Netflix, what a wonderful alliance. An alliance of distraction. Only $4.99 a month. Just to soak yourself away from your problems. Just to find some distraction. Something that will pull your eyes off the now into something that doesn't even exist to help you make you feel better. That's a wonderful pact, isn't it? That's going to make you feel better. A glass of wine, a, a glass of beer, some nice foods. A wonderful alliance after a heavy day. Some chocolates. Wonderful alliances, isn't it? To make you feel better. Am I the only one? Come on, it's Christmas. You can be honest. Um, the, the whole thing is so glaringly obvious when you read it from someone else's story. But in your own life, it's so hard to see, isn't it? Isaiah says, ask the divine alliance for a sign. Make an alliance with God. He will rescue you. It won't happen. He will come through for you. But yet King Ahaz can only see the small patch. He can't look beyond. And he's making an alliance, an earthly alliance to save him. And time and time again in the Old Testament, we can see that the biggest problems in life are not created by circumstances, not created by adversary uh, things happening in our lives, but when we put our trust in earthly allies rather than in the divine ally, your real problem is not your marriage. Your real problem is not your job. Your real problem is not your friends uh, or the relationships that have broken down, on your children or your financial problems. Your real problem is a heart that doesn't seek God in that moment. And our hope is not in these things being solved. Our hope is a heart that learns how to trust in a God who can see the whole picture. Our hope is in breaking earthly alliances and making an alliance with God, a divine alliance. Our hope is not in finding relief from the now or a bit of distraction. It's finding a deep hope even in the midst of circumstances. You can be in the midst of storm, nothing changing around you, and yet find a a profound, deep peace. Because you're aligned with God, you've made an alliance with God. God can bring hope where there's no hope. Now, A has this uh, uh, um, argument almost sounds pious. I won't put the Lord God to the test. How often can we as Christians become pious about unbelief? Let's just poke through it for a moment. We become all Christiany about these things. Oh. It's my cross to bear in life. It's probably God's will. Crap! It's absolute crap! It's what Satan is feeding your head with. It's lies. It's earthly alliances that will seek you to move away from a divine alliance who's saying, I'm the Lord of heavens enthroned about everything. What could be possibly too big for me? It is just. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish where Satan is leading us away. Away from God into alliances that will just break us down. It will will become the end of us. And and we we need to learn how to cut through this jargon. As a Christian community, we're so good at keeping up appearances and and, and throwing some, some, some comments away that mean nothing. In fact... Just mask our unbelief. Rather than going after God for healing and breakthrough, we're kind of saying, well, it's my cross to bear. Well, did God tell you? It was your cross to bear? Didn't Jesus already bear the cross? Didn't he die on the cross so his wounds will give us healing? It's not Jesus' will for us to be sick, my friends. It's not Jesus' will for us to be in tragedy. Can he use those things? Yeah, totally. Does he want those things for us? No. When we get to heaven, there will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no tragedy. Everything will be perfect. And we're called to be a kingdom people living in the now, getting hold of the then and bringing it into the now, getting hold of the promise that you've already given us and living in it. Now, does that mean that when we pray, everything gets solved? No, we, we live in the now and the not yet. But does that mean that we have to settle for the not yet? We've already got that. We want to get hold on the now. We want to get hold of what Jesus has for us. Not just settle. I mean, the only way to discover that that perhaps it's not yet is when you've given yourself fully to the now. I'd rather go down praying 65 years for the same person not being healed and then decide it wasn't meant to be than settling in the first 65 minutes of deciding that it wouldn't be. Who am I to decide for God? Let's put our trust in God and let's do away with pious crap. Let's do away with bias, stuff that just, that just gets in the way. Let's not use those languages together and pull each other up on it. If, if you hear those things, this is not what our community is like. Now, what we can see um, is that Ahaz decides to throw his lot in with an earthly king. And uh, he thinks, well, there's an immediate threat. I'm going to uh, align myself with the king of Assyria. And guess what happens? <coughs> Salvation comes from the... Kingdom of Assyria. The kingdom of Assyria sets Ahaz free from his immediate troubles. Because what we can see is that Israel goes down and Syria goes down by the hand of the Assyrians. So for the first 10 years, we have got a very smug Ahaz. I threw my lot in with the king of Assyria. We're buddies. He saved me. What about God? Don't need God. Look, it's working. For 10 years, it's working. And then something goes wrong. The king of Assyria was the cat who came to save the mouse when he was targeted by two rats, the king of Syria and the king of Israel. But the mouse, king of Judah, ended up for dessert because the king, the cat of Assyria, decided he wasn't finished yet. And then he came after Judah and he thought, I'll have you for dessert too. And then everything went wrong. For 10 years it worked and then it all went wrong. My friends, your plans can pay off quite well to start off with. MasterCard is going to solve all your problems tomorrow. It's true. Netflix is going to solve all your problems tonight. It's true. But how about 10 years' time? How about when you have found every loophole that you could get through and you come to the end? You will come to the end. In this life, we will all come to the end. And if we haven't made a divine alliance, then all our alliances will break down. You cannot bring a a natural alliance into a uh, divine future. There's going to be a moment where all of this life is going to fade away. And the alliance we've made at that moment will determine what's going to happen next. If you throw your lot in with this earth, then this earth (laughs) is all you're going to get. But if we throw a lot in with a divine ally, God himself, then there is hope even beyond this life. Even if for the first 10 years, making that choice makes you look stupid. Even if in this life, there's going to be no solution to your problem. There's going to be no salvation. The next life will be full of salvation. And what are we going to do? What are we going to settle for? You might look like an idiot following Jesus for the first 65 years. But there will come a day where there's going to be a difference. Now, what are you going to choose? Are you going to, are you going to live like a king for 10 years and then lose it all? Or are you going to learn how to throw your lot in with a divine ally, with God himself? Now, as all this unfolds, we can see some, some confusing names thrown into this story. I even stumbled over them as I was trying to read them. Um, we can see that Isaiah brings his son uh, to share the to share the, the, the message. And you're kind of trying to, you're trying to understand, what, what's Isaiah doing bringing his son? Is it like, bring your son to work day? It, it, what, is it just like, oh, nice father-daddy moment? No, there is some real significance. His, his son's name is Shere-Jesheb. Great name, isn't it? If we ever get a boy, I mean, this sounds great, isn't it? shere Jashub. Um, the, the truth is that, that that name had a meaning. It meant a small remnant will remain. That sounds a bit less fancy, doesn't it? Hey, a small remnant will remain. What would you like for breakfast? And it's A small remnant will remain had a prophetic meaning. Isaiah even named the, kid, the, the names of his kids were even prophetic. I mean, it doesn't get more prophetic than that, doesn't it? And, and it had a meaning. It says that a small remnant will remain. A, he was to bring his son because together with the promise... Uh, God already knew what was happening in Ahaz's heart. And he said, a small remnant will remain, will come with me as I share this promise. Because God promises to even when Ahaz goes the other way, continue his plan. A small remnant would remain. Although Ahaz would be leaving the country into the downfall, a small remnant will remain. God's plan was still at work. And then we can see that um, uh, Isaiah prophesies that in the span of a child's life, all of these things would unfold. So within the next 10 years, we can see that all these kingdoms will be broken down. Uh, so he said, by the time a child would grow up, and he calls the child Emmanuel. It's like a hypothetical name, because we can't actually see a, a specific child being Emmanuel at that season. But again, that name is prophetic, and it means God with us. So in the span of a, ch- a child's life, Emmanuel, that's the the original uh, prophecy that that, uh, Isaiah gave. All of these things would happen. So it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then we can read that there's a whole bunch of warnings that come with that. Now, the truth is that Isaiah is saying in the time for a virgin to get married and to have a child uh, and for that child to grow up, in that time span, all of these things are going to come true. Now, what happens with prophetic words is often in the Old Testament, they have different levels of depth. Now, it's a little bit like you're you're looking at a row of hills from a distance. If you look at a a country um, uh, 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 outlay and you see the hills from a distance, you can't quite tell which hill is front which hill is back and how big they are is until you get there you suddenly start to understand do you get what i'm saying so if you've got a, a row of hills here a row of hills there and a row of hills there it kind of seemed like all one thing when you look at it from a distance but actually when you get closer you can see that they're miles apart now this is what's happening here isaiah is giving a promise that will come true there and then in the first 10 years that promise would come true and that's like the front row but what we can see is that there will be a next row Because the next row would be not just a word about uh, Israel and Syria would come true, but also the word about Judah would come true. Judah would come up for judgment too. And that was to happen much later. And then we can see that there's another level of hills and rows further back. And that talks about Emmanuel, which is obviously the prophetic word that we know refers to Jesus. Jesus. So we can see that all of these things are blended together into one picture, but they have different layers. And often when you read through the Old Testament, you can see that the people were just looking through this small little patch. And what they could see was like the first, the first row of hills. What they couldn't see was the depth and the meaning of what was to come. So when we come to the New Testament and we see the promise fulfilled in Jesus, all of a sudden, all these pieces come together. And they make a promise. And when you look through the, through the back screen, through the back window, you think, ah, that makes sense. But when you're in the midst of it, It's confusing. That's often what prophecy is. And this is what's so important for us because to get hold of the promises about Jesus is for us to learning to put our trust in Jesus uh, in the same way that these people had to learn to put their trust in the prophetic word that Isaiah was bringing. They could only see a small patch. Now, the truth is we still only can see a small patch in our life. We can see the whole picture of Jesus becoming Emmanuel, God with us, But the truth is, we still need to learn what that means in our life. And we still don't quite get the full picture. So when we read in Matthew 1, verse 20, we can see the fulfillment of this promise. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is Matthew 1, verse 20. To him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. To what Isaiah had been saying all those years ago, and after the first row of hills came the second row of hills and the third row of hills. Now what we can see is that it didn't stop there. So we can see that Jesus became to be God with us. He was literally God walking amongst people, starting to release the kingdom and inaugurate the kingdom. But what we can see is that it, it didn't stay there. What Jesus had in mind was God with us that went much further. You see, when the people in that day thought Jesus is coming, he's the Messiah, what they understood was, front row hill, he's going to get rid of the Romans. But God had a much bigger plan in mind. He was going to get rid of sin that was in their hearts. And he was, he was not just going to be God in, in human form, Jesus with them. He was going to become God in them. So when Jesus died on the cross and he took all the punishment from from the whole world upon himself, then died, was resurrected, he then goes to his disciples and says, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to send you a helper. And this is going to be God. If you think about it, this is going to be God living in you, the Holy Spirit in you. This is not just God with you. This is God in you. And then if we read Romans 8, I mean, just try to get your head around this for a moment. Romans 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> to live with God in you means that you cannot turn anywhere and lose the presence of God. God says you cannot escape my presence. I'm going to come and be with you, God, Emmanuel. I'm going to be with you so much so that there's no place you can go. You see, if God's presence is on the earth, it means there is no place on earth you can go to escape his presence. Now, that doesn't mean that inside of us, we can make some decisions that turn away from God and actually not be able to embrace his presence. But it means that as soon as you're in that place, you've turned away, lots of mess have happened. As soon as you turn around, God's there. God is there. We can see years of, of problems and, 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 and kings and, and, and we can see them take, being taken over by other countries. But God's problems was a small remnant will remain. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to continue to pursue you. Maybe some of you have even said this week, I don't feel God's nearby. Let me repeat the word I said before a few times. Crap. It's a lie. God is with you all the time. He's wherever you go. And if you feel far away from God, then we need to ask ourselves the question, is there anything in my heart that is not turning to God? As soon as you turn to God, He's there. I mean, we might not feel Him or experience Him all the time, but He's there. You cannot move away from God. He's God Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God in us. And we need to embrace that power. Romans 8 verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives Amen. in you. Yeah. The spirit lives in you. Yeah. God lives in you. Yeah. I can't just get, I just cannot get my head around it. How could God live in me? I I, I would Combust if I even think about the idea of God being in me. Like, pfft, how could I? How can I still be alive and God being in me? Well, um, uh, I heard yesterday Mike Betts, um, who leads our family of churches. He liked it uh, like this. He says um, being filled with the presence of God is a bit like this. You're like a swallow who's who's flying over the waters and then dips down and takes a big full of water out of the out of the big lake. What happens at that moment is that that water is inside the swallow. Is all of the water inside the swallow? No, it would totally break. When we talk about the presence of God, this is it. We are filled with the presence of God in us. Does that mean that we have all of God inside of us? Kind of. And at the same time, we're still only tasting a little bit. Because we're coming to heaven and we'll discover that we only ever traveled with a beak full. And there's a whole vast lake, the vastness of God to discover. There's the whole vastness of God for us. Say, God, I want more of you. I For the rest of my days, I'm going to cry out to God. I want more of you. I'm a little swallow, but I want as much as I can soak in. Because I trust you. You are God with us. Why don't we respond together and invite God to be God with us. To be God in us. Shall we stand together?